Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. When the University of Connecticut hosted former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton for a speaking event, she was paid $250,000 by the Yukon Foundation, a fundraising organization that supports university efforts. It raised a lot of questions about the work of the foundation, how it raises its money, and from whom it comes. The problem is that by state law, the Yukon Foundation is exempt from freedom of information searches. The foundation says it already provides a lot of this information, and without donor anonymity, it won't be able to fundraise as effectively. Some lawmakers have been trying to change this exemption for years. New legislation is pushing for transparency, and it looks like a compromise between lawmakers and the foundation is possible. This hour, we're going to listen back to a panel discussion I hosted earlier this week. It was sponsored by the Connecticut Foundation for Open Government and WNPR. It's about what information the Yukon Foundation should make public. Our guests are Alexa Capoloto, Assistant Professor of Journalism at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. She's the author of several papers on university foundations and freedom of information. Derek Slapp is Associate Vice President of External Relations at the Yukon Foundation. Coming up later, we'll hear from the chair of the Yukon Foundation Board of Directors and also State Senator Michael McLaughlin. He's pushing for legislation to bring transparency to the foundation. They all spoke on a panel at the Lyceum in Hartford. First, here's Alexa Capoloto with some history of how these foundations originated. 1891 is really where it started in Kansas. The Kansas University Endowment Association was created to raise money among alumni of the University of Kansas. But foundations really weren't a thing until the 20th century. Um, there were only a few, 30s, 40s, 1930s, 1940s, By 1980, there were about 350. Then during the 80s, there was an explosion of foundations. That's when they really became kind of a fixture uh, at public universities. And that's because that's when public funding for higher education started to really decrease under President Reagan. So these universities had to get creative and think about other ways to bring in money because they couldn't rely on the public support that they had had for so long. So by the end of the 80s, really foundations uh, were in the vast majority of universities. And um, today, probably 85 to 90% of universities have affiliated foundations. So now it really is a fixture. And what do these foundations largely support? I and mean, what are they there for? That's changed over time. I mean, in the beginning, they were there. They were called an added margin of excellence. They were there to provide a margin of excellence. And so they were contributing money towards student scholarships. They were maybe helping with capital improvements on campus. And over time, as the money has grown and as their role has grown, they've really become, uh, they fund uh, really the essentials down to the salaries of administrators and staff at universities. The money goes to all sorts of things, still scholarships and capital improvements, um, but they, they, they are part of almost all the facets of funding at universities today. In just a little bit, we're going to be talking with a, a state senator who 
um, is interested in changing some of the laws. But I guess I'm wondering if you can just briefly tell us um, how unusual it is to have a state university, a flagship state university, exempt from freedom of information laws in the way that University of Connecticut is. It's very unusual. It's really in most states, there's nothing said either way. So there's certainly no inclusion of foundations in freedom of information laws. In fact, there's only one state that, that expressly includes foundations, and that's Nevada. For the most part, it's really not, um, it's, it's not been brought up at all. It is unusual to have a foundation explicitly exempt from a freedom of information law. So, so in many states, you, you could go challenge for information if you wanted to, but that's different here in Connecticut. There's actually an exemption written in the law. That's right. Uh, I know it's been said um, in the local press that Connecticut is the only state where, in New England where foundations are not subject to the freedom of information law. That's, that's not quite true. In the other states, it simply really hasn't been challenged. It's not come up. Um, it's the only state where it's expressly exempt. I, I want to get back to you in a moment, Alexa, but I, I want to bring in Derek Slapp from the Yukon Foundation and, and, and talk a little bit about this. So you, you've heard some of what uh, Alexa has to say. Many people, uh, including the state senator who's sitting next to you, say these laws need to change. We need to learn more about how the university raises money, how it spends money, who is spending money on the university. Why do you believe these laws don't need to change? Well, I think the notion that the Yukon Foundation is not transparent is certainly one that, you know, we don't accept that. Um, we would argue that the, the Yukon Foundation is the most transparent nonprofit in the state of Connecticut. No question. I mean, if you look at all the information that we already provide, there is a uh, separate state statute uh, for uh, nonprofits uh, that help um, support a state agency uh, requires us to have an independent audit uh, and to send that audit and the audit report uh, to the uh, public auditors and to the attorney general's office. I have a four-page uh, document here lists um, all the different things that we have to uh, you know, provide to the public. And um, I would say thanks actually to the good work of Senator McLaughlin, who's been working um, with the foundation and with the many other stakeholders. We're going to add to that list. So we'll have even more things that we'll be making um, public. So. Um, you know, I think it is important to put it in perspective, right? But um, we want to provide uh, lots of information, and we do. Uh, the independence, though, of the foundation is something that's very important. Uh, it's important to our donors. Uh, when you say independence from the university, explain exactly what that means. It's the Yukon Foundation, and from everything I understand, it provides some really necessary funding for the operation of key parts of the of Yukon. So how is it independent? Yeah, there's actually a four-part test that um, came up in a state Supreme Court decision not so long ago. Um, and it was about a, uh, a town that was going to essentially outsource uh, its public schools, right? And, and uh, so they came up with this criteria for what determines whether you're, uh, you know, essentially functioning as a public agency. And uh, we would argue that at best... Um, we meet part of one uh, of those, of those uh, you know, that, that four-part test. And that's where, do we receive some financial support from the university? Yes. Last year was about 41% um, of, of our overall budget. Uh, other criteria, are we controlled by uh, the government? The answer is no. We operate fully independently of the university. Um, so that's another important thing when you're looking you know, at that. Um, and another one, of course, is uh, do we provide a government function, right? And we, I think we could probably have a robust debate about that. We would say there, there is no other state agency that, does, um, that raises funds, that goes out and, and does the type of work that we do. Um, so we would argue, no, we don't provide a core 
uh, government functions. So if you start, you know, ticking off the list, we would say, no, we, we are not a public agency. And I think if we were to become one, um, that would, and again, the donor's perspective, I think, is important here. Um, we believe that would have an impact on, on donations um, and on people because, uh, you know, donors and people already give to the state of Connecticut. They give on April 15th, um, and they don't want to uh, be forced to give or give in a way that, you know, their money could be redirected uh, by the state. Well, not, not to get too Rand Paul on you here, but I mean, I think many people I would suggest ma- many people would suggest that that you don't give on April fifteenth. Someone takes from you. That's slightly different than a gift to to a university. Um, what I understand, and, and just for full disclosure, the UConn Foundation does what we call underwriting credits on our air, on WNPR's air, and we, and we hear stories all the time about the good work that the UConn Foundation does, including providing scholarships to students. Isn't this core work that the university wants to have done? I mean, if, if the UConn Foundation doesn't do it, how does it get done elsewhere? Right, I mean, a lot, a lot how of times does it, it won't get yeah, done. I mean, yeah. donors want to, um, they don't want it to be a zero-sum game where yeah. it's like, all right, the, cut, the, the state is going to cut, and then the donor is going to come in and just provide those services, right? It's, but, but then isn't that a core government foundation, a, a government function? I mean, isn't it providing a government function if it's essentially doing something that government should be doing? Well, a lot of, t- and that, that's up for debate whether the government should be doing that. I'll give you a, kind of a perfect example, and this is of the, uh, the basketball practice facility that was built on campus uh, completely um, with uh, philanthropic funds. Would this have been built uh, if it wasn't for donors? I don't think so. Um, would it have been built if there, uh, and we had many donors who wanted to give anonymously to that. Um, that adds um, a lot of value uh, to UConn Nation. It uh, helps you know, uh, the basketball teams. Um, is it something, especially in this current budget crisis, but even without, that the state would come up and spend $35 million? I would suggest that probably not. Alexa, do you, do you have a response to that, just a thought about this construction, about the sort of a litmus test that essentially Derek is saying that UConn doesn't meet the, the, the base level uh, requirements to be a, a public entity? Yeah, he's referring to a, st- a state Supreme Court case in Connecticut, um, which actually borrowed from some decisions in other states called a totality of factors decision, where they looked at a number of factors and the court assessed whether the foundation met these, well, not foundation, but the private entity met these factors. So um, I don't think, though, that that needs to guide us in how we treat the foundation. I think legislation, proactive legislation, really needs to be looked at and discussed, as it has been rather robustly, I I understand, in Connecticut, um, because courts really have done most of the decision-making on this issue. So when I said it's unusual to have legislation either way, it really is, but courts in a number of states have have taken up this issue and decided it in myriad ways. So that's a decision that has been guiding us in Connecticut, Um, but I don't think that would preclude us from really thinking about the best way to approach these types of entities here and elsewhere. I think um, I think in the legislatures they need to be talking about this so that courts don't have to make these kinds of interpretations in the absence of legislative guidance. Should this be something handled in the state legislature versus the courts, Derek? Well, I would say, you know, it, it is being handled right now in the legislature, I think in a very productive, collaborative way. Uh, Senator McLaughlin um, has been working very hard on it. Um, he said in a, in a public hearing recently, uh, essentially, that, um, and believe me, I don't want to um, uh, misquote you, but you got about 98% of what he wanted, and when you're 
you're dealing uh, with uh, legislative negotiations, 98% is really good. Um, so I think we've, we've come a long way, and we're working to uh, enhance uh, public confidence in, in, uh, in the foundation. I think this uh, compromise legislation will do that, at the same time protecting uh, its independence. That's Derek Slapp from the Yukon Foundation, speaking with journalism professor Alexa Capilotto. Coming up, Senator Mike McLaughlin will talk about his proposed bill and why it's important to him that there's more transparency around the Yukon Foundation. I'm John Dankosky, and this is Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today we're listening back to a panel which is focused on university foundations and the public's right to know. We've been listening to Alexa Capilotto. She's assistant professor of journalism at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Also, Derek Slapp from the Yukon Foundation. Also on this panel is Yukon Foundation Board Chair Dan Toscano and State Senator Michael McLaughlin. McLaughlin has been pushing for years for the foundation to be opened back up to the Freedom of Information Act. This year, it looks like there may finally be a compromise bill. Well, let me begin by uh, a, a different assumption that I have versus uh, the Yukon Foundation. And I think if we look at, uh, we've, we were just listening to other panelists talk about, uh, is it a state agency, is it a, a function of government? And I think the, the Government Accounting Standards Board clearly states what uh, university foundations are. If uh, they fit three general standards, one, are their funds held entirely or almost entirely for the benefit of the public entity? Yukon Foundation, I say yes. Two, the public entity is entitled to or can otherwise access the majority of those funds. Uh, UConn Foundation uh, makes the money available to uh, the university. Uh, and three, the funds are significant to the public entity. Well, it's a big deal. Uh, the, the University of Connecticut relies on the UConn Foundation. And so <clears throat> with that assumption, uh, my first request of the state legislature several years ago was full disclosure under Freedom of Information and to strike the exemption that currently exists in state statute. Uh, that was DOA. No one would have any conversation about it. Uh, we did uh, come back the next year with another proposal, uh, was able to get a public hearing, um, and uh, that was a, a, a juggernaut, if you will, of opposition. And uh, then this past summer, there was a lot of discussion with the University of Connecticut and the foundation uh, and legislators. Uh, I personally wasn't invited to the table in that discussion, but uh, discussion took place, which I'm grateful for, and they came up with the bill that was in higher education, the one that was hard to read, so to speak. And so that is <coughs> that bill uh, was the one that, that uh, was embraced by uh, those who opposed my previous efforts. Uh, and it, uh, it did add more reporting, if you will, uh, an annual report, so to speak, to the legislature uh, and disclosed a bit more information, uh, most of which I already could get elsewhere. So, uh, so you don't think it goes far enough? No, but they did amend the bill. And so they took the language um, of the bill that I submitted this year and I call that sort of the Hail Mary pass in football. Uh, you, you've got a few seconds left. You got a shot at a touchdown. Uh, my efforts uh, for full disclosure were once again shunned this year. Didn't even make it to a public hearing. Uh, 
so I made one last-ditch effort with the uh, Government Administration and Elections co-chairs to make this uh, bill, which uh, you're seeing now, uh, with three major points of disclosure that we currently don't have. And so, uh, thankfully, the Higher Education Committee scooped up that language and put it in their bill. So now we have something that, as Derek said, I said was 98%, was 98% of the Hail Mary. Um, it, it's not full disclosure, but, it's, so, but so I must have granted, it is 98% of the Hail Mary passed. Why is full disclosure so important to you? My point is donors don't care about full disclosure. That's the way I feel about it. Now, I say that because um, every nonprofit organization that I've personally helped raise money for, and there have been dozens, almost none of any of the, the donations that I've recruited were asked to be anonymous. Mm -hmm. Nothing was ever anonymous. So their name is published somewhere, some way, somehow. I keep hearing this pushback that personal financial records should not be public record. Nobody's ever asked for personal financial records. All we want to know is your name, how much money you gave, and if you're expecting anything in return, like a naming right of a building or whatever. Um, Dan Toscano, so talk about this, this thing. I mean, essentially, the, uh, the, the senator is saying most people who give to something like the UConn Foundation, they don't really care if their names are made, made public. Why is it so important to keep these names private? Well, uh, you know, first and foremost, um, we don't know that, right? And, and you can look back at history as one guide, um, but I would also uh, point out that this foundation is trying desperately to keep up with the university. Um, if you see all that's happened at the university, particularly in the last half decade, um, I would argue maybe going back to UConn 2000, um, many years ago, um, th this is a university that is trying to, to rise to the standard of the state of Connecticut in the Union. Um, we are one of, if not the wealthiest states in the Union. We have one of, if not the most educated workforces in the, uh, in the nation, and yet we're struggling. And I think one of the things that um, the legislature, um, and we're grateful, uh, as a resident of the state, I'm grateful, identified um, a great state needs a great public university, um, and we have a number of them, uh, and they range in, um, in expertise and, uh, and accessibility, uh, whether it's UConn or the state universities or the community colleges or the technical schools. Um, we, we have many, um, and we're blessed, but um, we're trying to keep up as a foundation, not only with the ambitions of the university, um, but also with the increasing need for um, the university to fund itself away from the legislature. And I, I think you said something in your opening comments, I think, about um, a university's budget being having to ride the economy. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very difficult when you're uh, investing for the long term in higher education uh, with economies that are inherently cyclical. And I think one of the... Um, the benefits of a foundation and one of the goals is to try to create some element of smoothing out so that um, when the legislature has to make tough decisions about a budget, um, it doesn't uh, potentially you know, create a train wreck for long-term plans. 
Alexa, do you have a thought on that? Because I'd like to hear from Derek Slap on that. But I, I, again, in, in I've had conversations like this before. I think those of us who are in the press have a perhaps different perception of what we believe is publicly disclosable. Um, the way we tend to view it is uh, we paid for it, so it's ours to look at. And that's not the press, but that's like public citizens, so mm -hmm. that they can see where their money's being spent. I, am I am I wrong in that in that perception? No, and and money isn't the only thing. I mean, as as Derek mentioned, um, one of the factors is function too. It's not just does public money go to this, but does it function in a public way? And for a lot of people, even that is enough in their minds to warrant disclosure. But I did want to respond to this idea that uh, if you are subject to FOIA, you are everything's open that you are laid bare. And that's, that's not really the case. I mean, FOIA laws nationally and statewide, you know, state to state, have exemptions written in. And, and nobody can get anything they want from public agencies. Um, the exemptions include trade secrets, um, privacy interests, um, certainly security, national security. Um, so there are still exemptions that could potentially apply if the foundation were subject to FOIA. Um, and, and I think I would want the foundation to have the same protections that any public agency would have under those laws. Um, so I just, I just wanted to, to respond to that because, because I think that um, no FOIA law is interested in laying bare every bit of information. I think that they do balance a lot of factors against the public's right to know. Right. Well, and finding that balance is what <clears throat> is what we're trying to do. We think the le the legislation accomplishes that. But John raised a great point about um, accountability. And if it's if it's my money, meaning I think what you're saying, if I can infer from um, what you're saying, is uh, taxpayer money. Yes. Then I want to know. Um, of course, the foundation. Uh, when we're talking about how the foundation uh, spends uh, donor money, right? Our first and foremost obligation is. Um, is to uh, honor a donor intent. Um, and so we don't have a problem with our donors, right, questioning or wondering, um, or, or, or let me say this, suggesting that we're not spending their money in the right way. We have myriad controls and accountability measures. We don't have that issue in the foundation. Um, our donors know that uh, we are accountable to them, and we show them. We believe me. We take um, as, uh, great pains to uh, stewardship efforts and uh, reports on on um, how the, the scholarship funding is being spent. Um, and so, you know, there are a few cases. I would say about 97 percent of donations are uh, restricted. Uh, so we get in, and we have to follow to the letter of the law exactly how, where the donor wants that money. Which, which, spent. which is why people, I think, want to know what influence those donors have. Donors, big donors, yeah. to a university foundation have outsized influence on what gets done with a state university. So we want to know how that money's being spent and who's spending the money. And, and, we, and what I would say, we, we are showing that. And we have, uh, like I said, four, I have a, a document here with four pages of all the different things that we show. The Hillary Clinton uh, example that uh, Senator McLaughlin brought up um, is another one w which has really nothing to do with the freedom of information. Uh, the, the speaking series that uh, it's named after is the Fusco Speaker Series. There's, no, there's never any secret um, as far as um, the amount 
uh, that the uh, former secretary uh, was paid. Um, and that was a gift, um, and I feel compelled when it's, when it's brought up to say that uh, it was a gift by this family specifically for that purpose. We could not have said, we're going to take this money and spend it someplace else. Reasonable people can disagree about whether that, um, you know, whether the secretary um, should have accepted it or whether it was too much or whatever. That's not, right, I'm, we're not going to debate that, but the point is, does it fit in with the mission of the university, um, which it did, bringing those type of speakers, and she's been part of a uh, a series that brought Republicans and Democrats um, to campuses, so it's not a, it's not a partisan um, issue. But that's something that, it's an example that gets brought up, and I think instead of saying, using it as a cudgel to beat the foundation over the head, we should use it as an opportunity to educate folks about, this is an example, and we followed donor intent. Um, you know, there wasn't any information that what, you know, wasn't disclosed. Um, and you know there was nothing uh, right improper about it. So, so the so Senator, uh, 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 private people give money to the Yukon Foundation with the express intent of bringing Hillary Clinton, uh, former Secretary of the State and now presidential candidate, to campus to speak for two hundred fifty thousand um, dollars. Derek's just laid out why essentially there, there's nothing to challenge in that. What's your concern about that? I don't have a problem with that. Uh, if that family wants to do that, that's fine with me. Here's the point, though. Uh, when we talk about freedom of information and interfering with the operation of the foundation, I think that's changing the subject, really. Uh, freedom of information has no intention of telling the Yukon Foundation how to operate, other than it should be more transparent. Uh, but with sunlight comes information that may make some operations different than they would be otherwise. My urging of the Yukon Foundation to come to the table and have productive discussion, which occurred over the summer, and I'm very grateful for that. I am, you, you have no idea how grateful I am that that occurred, uh, is very important uh, for all of those reasons that I mentioned, but most importantly, they are important for the university and the foundation. They accepted the language in my bill, in the higher education bill, and we've got a little bit of disclosure. It's not full disclosure under FOI. And the point that I was asking for, which was most important to me, is that if the foundation is making payments for salaries and benefits to a state employee, which you are, you're subsidizing the president's salary, you're supposedly paying other salaries that we're unaware of, that you will disclose those, and that's part of the agreement that, right. that you're willing to do that. And so my other point is, or any other payments. I believe that any payment made by the University of Connecticut Foundation to a state employee, not to a University of Connecticut Foundation employee, but to a state employee, should be fully disclosed. And, 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 I, I, and I want to hear from Dan Cassano in a moment, but Derek, could you just respond to that? Can we get there? Why yeah, well, can't we, I mean, get there? we had a great dialogue about this in the public hearing. Um, we think we do provide that information essentially just in a different form. It's, um, and, and I can go through the list, but we, we're going to be providing now, again, thanks to Senator McLaughlin's leadership on this in part, um, uh, a, a, a document showing disbursements to each of the different what we call constituent units. That's kind of um, uh, technical talk, but essentially to all the different schools and colleges that make up UConn, and then also athletics. Um, and then 
um, subdivisions as far as they're going towards uh, facilities or construction or equipment or um, program and research. So, two, two specific uh, individuals? Two. So those are two, the different schools and colleges. We also, as Senator McLaughlin mentioned, um, we're including, you know, in the legislation, or he is, I should say, but we certainly support it, um, payments uh, to individuals, compensation, right? So what um, compensation the foundation provides and the position of that state employee. So I, yeah. I think we, we have, you know, we, we are um, uh, disclosing a lot of information, and I would suggest more than any other nonprofit in the state. That's Derek Slap from the Yukon Foundation. Also on our panel is Alexa Capilotto. She's assistant professor of journalism at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, Michael McLaughlin, a state senator, and Yukon Foundation board chair Dan Toscano. We'll be back after this break. I'm John Dankowski. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on Monday's show, a new study on childhood obesity shows that kids who eat two breakfasts actually stay healthier than those who skip the meal altogether. It points toward the importance of accessible breakfasts for all school children. We'll learn about that, and we'll talk about new legislation that would change the tipping economy in the food industry. Hope you can join us. Today, we're listening back to a panel that was sponsored by the Connecticut Foundation for Open Government and WNPR. It's on university foundations and the public's right to know. Our panelists are John Jay College journalism professor Alexa Capilotto, State Senator Michael McLaughlin, Derek Slapp from the Yukon Foundation, and Dan Toscano. He's chair of the Yukon Foundation board. I asked Toscano about his role as a Yukon donor and whether donors who can direct their money towards specific programs have too much influence. Look, at the end of the day... Uh, the foundation's mission is to support the missions of the university, and they are varied. They range from, you know, the cost of, of, of providing a competitive football program to uh, owning and operating a, a hospital. And, you know, so my view as a, as a volunteer in my job is to try to find people and organizations who want to support any one of the myriad missions of the University of Connecticut. Um, and so some people say, well, why do you spend $35 million building a practice facility for, you know, for a handful of students to have the benefit of um, while your uh, lecture halls uh, need to be rebuilt? And I say, well, if somebody came forth and said, I'm willing to spend the money to get you know, a, a lecture hall rebuilt, then it gets rebuilt, as long as it's consistent with the mission of the university. And I think there are uh, numerous controls, not only on our side at the foundation, but also in the university who determines its mission. I, I, I wonder, can I just... Yeah, sure, quickly, if you would. Uh, and I'm not calling you a radical, but no. I think that you are, what you just said is somewhat <laughs> yeah. radical, the suggestion yeah. that one cannot give anonymously, and we would be an outlier. I mean, we would, perhaps only Nevada and Connecticut would then have a system where people could not give anonymously, if we kind of follow through with that. And, is, and Alexis, that's, I don't right? know if that's where we want to be, especially yeah. with the context of, you know, the support that the university needs. And, and, yeah, and I, I don't know that I'm necessarily saying that, but Alexa, is, is he right about what he just said? Uh, no. I mean, um, in Minnesota, donor names are public, um, but letters and correspondence about that, um, where exactly the money goes, that's not. There have been some high court decisions in other states that um, where the justices have said donor names are public. Um, in fact, in Kentucky, they said, look, those who gave in the past, they gave 
under the assumption that they would remain anonymous, that's okay. But from now on, people are on notice that if you give to, um, if you give money to support a public agency, which is essentially what you're doing when you give to a foundation, you are on notice that you your name will be um, made public. Um, and scholars have looked at this um, in these states where these decisions have come down, and they've looked at the giving after these decisions, and, and they have found no impact um, on giving. The, the, the donations have gone up. Um, so they've not found any correlation between identifying donors and uh, chilling, as, as the term is, of donation. <laughs> Given what some of what we heard about the way UConn has has taken some of this money and put it to, to use, whether it's football practice facilities, scholarships for very needy students, helping to pay for very important faculty or administrators, um, is this all consistent with what's being done around the country? I mean, can can you put this in some context of how foundations tend to work and what they tend to fund elsewhere? Yeah, it's it's pretty consistent. I think the foundation um, does, from what I can tell, very good work that a lot of foundations are doing around the country. Um, there was a survey done a few years ago, and 42% and of foundations said that they were supplementing the salaries of administrators and staff at universities, so that's not unusual. I know that the amount has raised some eyebrows here, um, but everything that's been described, everything they do is, is pretty consistent with what's done elsewhere. But I, I just want to say something from the standpoint of a donor, just for what it's worth. Yeah. Um, as well as a, as a chairperson who spends a lot of time trying to raise money uh, ultimately in support of, of UConn. Um, one is, I, I think the, um, the notion of uh, anonymity is, is one element, and I'll use myself as, as an example. Um, the first major gift I gave to the university was to fund two scholarships, um, and I intended for those to be anonymous. And uh, in speaking with the president of the foundation as well as the president of the university at the time, they said, we are desperately trying to raise scholarship money for students at UConn. Um, the more we can get out the stories and tell them about people who are willing to do this, the more likely we are to get more people. Can we implore you to please allow us to use your name? Um, and I struggled with that because I live a very private life. I'm a private citizen. Uh, I'm not an employee of the state, and I did not want that information to be known. Ultimately, we put the scholarships in the name of, of um, my parents and my wife's parents, um, but only because I was getting involved with the foundation and I understood the need for that information to be used to continue to, to drive support. Um, the second major uh, philanthropy that we did with UConn was to create an endowed chair uh, in the School of Business. Um, so I followed sort of the mandate of the school, which was we need scholarship money to attract great students and, and students who can't afford to come here. Um, and then five years later, they said, you know, we have a little problem. Uh, we don't have enough faculty to teach them. So students are having a harder time getting out in four years. Class sizes are growing. We really need to have a, a mission as well as to build scholarship money, but to, to build uh, money to, to, uh, for faculty to teach them. And so we endowed a chair. And it was the same discussion. I said, I'd rather just create a chair. You can name it whatever you want. And they said, we need more people like you. Um, I believe in the School of Business. I don't know if you know this off the top of your head, 
I think there are 12 endowed chairs in the School of Business at UConn. It's deplorable. We should have 50. Um, so we allowed our family name to be used for that um, because they use me as a, as a you know, I'm the, I'm the sticky tape that goes out and tries to find other people to come on board. But a lot of people don't want that. Um, so I, I, I disagree a little bit. I understand that the data might suggest otherwise, but there are a lot of other things going on in that data that could potentially um, skew what it's telling you. Alexa, what do you think of this bill that is, that is now being considered by the Connecticut State Legislature? What, what, what do you think its, its impact will be in, in its current form? It's hard to say. I mean, I do appreciate that there has been a compromise, that there's been a discussion among the parties, and um, I do wonder how much is new. I think the foundation, from what I can tell, was pretty open. They were, I mean, you have independent audits done that you share with the state, right? Yep. Um, you know, the Form 990s are, are readily available as, as they're supposed to be. Um, so. I, I am wondering what exactly is new, and from what I can tell, it, it has to do with um, kind of these tallies of um, categories that the money is going toward in terms of expenditures. Yeah, there's actually two additional parts that, and I don't want to cut you mm. off, so if you want to go, but that haven't been talked about at all that I think really are, to your point, new, and one of them is establishing uh, a threshold for scholarships and an yeah. amount that's going to be raised, and I think I'm, this is probably safe to say unprecedented for a nonprofit in, in the state say that we are going to you know make every reasonable effort to raise at least 15% for scholarships every single year so that's part of it um, because we heard even though it's our number one priority we heard from from legislators saying we want something codified says you're not going to take your eye off the ball that you are going to commit to you know raising money for scholarships even though we don't as we know have control you know direct control over who donates to what, but the, you know, the point was made that we can market and we can ask for scholarships, so, so that's in the legislation. And then additionally, um, the foundation is uh, going to begin a process of um, seeing a reduction in uh, support from the university as the endowment grows. Um, so we would be the last part of that four-part test. We are, are um, you know, setting in motion to not have that applicable to us and to not receive, eventually, um, any state support. And that's the thing I wanted to ask next, this, this notion that there would be no state support. How much state support right now does the UConn Foundation get? Um, so the uh, MOU, which is public, by the way, between the university and uh, the foundation, um, it's about $8 million uh, per year. Uh, the um, Alumni Association, as uh, many listeners know, um, integrated or merged with the uh, foundation. The uh, university um, gave, I believe, about $2 million annually to the uh, Alumni Association. That is going to the foundation, so it's about 10 now total going forward. Um, and that'll begin to be, uh, you know, kind of drawn down, um, and, and it's benchmarked with the growth in the endowment, because I don't think anybody would want us to, you know, immediately have to cut back on our efforts, because the, the, if I could just mention yeah. that the uh, return on investment for that $8 million, right, is 10 to 1. Essentially, if you look at the $80 million that we've raised, you know, each of the last two years. Some of the issues I think we face as a, as a foundation <coughs> stem from the fact that uh, UConn was very late to the game of, of found, uh, fundraising. I think, as Alexa said, you know, if you go back through the history, um, 
you think about um, where we're ranked as a state university, right? We're a top 20 public university. Um, uh, my understanding is we have the 212th largest university endowment in the country. One of the reasons, for example, that um, the funding from the block grant is so important to the growth of the foundation is because we're new. Um, mature foundations that have been in existence for 50, 100, 150 years uh, can, can fund their operations purely off their endowment. Um, we cannot do that. Our endowment is not big enough. Um, it is growing, and we have, you know, we have a uh, an unwritten, um, in some some cases, written goal to raise a hundred million dollars a year, and ultimately to deliver an endowment that's a billion dollars. Since since Derek Slap already considers me a radical, I just figure I'll, I'll throw <laughs> something out. University of Connecticut wasn't in the top 20 public universities not too terribly long ago. In our, certainly in our lifetimes, but even within the last 10, 20 years, right? I mean, this is a, a relatively recent phenomenon. So we have risen, the flagship university of the state of Connecticut has risen to be one of the top research universities, one of the top public universities in the entire country. And we, in, in your estimation, languish behind a 200-something in, in fundraising. Well. How do we get there? I mean, how do we get to be a top 20 university without worrying so much about raising money? We must be doing something right. Well, I would submit to you that it, it's actually the legislature and the taxpayers of Connecticut that, that went against the tide that, uh, that occurred elsewhere in the country. You talked about, mm -hmm. uh, our panelists talked about in the Reagan era, uh, funding went dramatically down across the country, but not in Connecticut. Uh, billions of dollars have been invested in, in the University of Connecticut by Connecticut taxpayers. And, and in the last five years, billions more. Big, mm -hmm. big, big investments. Uh, that's really how we've gotten where we are now. I, I just want to get to a, a question or two from our audience. Uh, hi, sir. Go ahead. Thank you. Um, my concern is uh, the anonymous uh, donor situation. Um, I just think that's fraught with possible... Um, errors down the road. And I do the analogy to what's going on in our society with the um, Citizens United and the um, setting up of these PACs and these super PACs where they can be set up outside of the political candidate, supporting the candidate, but the donations to it is completely private. And I think this is runs the risk of making an, a political statement for the university. And I don't think the university wants to get in that situation at all. Can you uh, respond, Dan, to what the gentleman had to say? Well, uh, the thing I focus most on and the thing I'm most worried about is um, what I had said earlier on about the notion of um, how donors think their money is being used. Um, so on the one hand, you know, if I'm a donor and I'm supplanting state funding, uh, I might be less inclined to do that because uh, you might take the view that uh, if I give money, it's just solving another problem. Uh, it's allowing the money in the state's budget to go elsewhere. Um, and near as I can tell, and John, I think you said it early on, um, I don't think anyone pays more than the, the form says they're supposed to pay in taxes because they love the state. Um, we probably all love this state, uh, but not enough to just start giving it extra money. Um, I they, give to they, the, they give all their extra to public radio. <laughs> That's right. Um, you know, I, I give to the university uh, because it's a university, not because it's, um, it's, it's part of the state. 
Uh, and I'd frankly like to see a day where the university doesn't rely on the state at all for its funding. Um, and it will get there at some point. It's going to take a long time. Was, and so Senator McLaughlin, uh, you know, he makes a very um, impassioned case that, that getting away from uh, reliance on state funds coming out of the legislature, the body that you're in, is something that will be in the long-term interest of the University of Connecticut. Do you agree with that? Well, I think that that is a, a laudable goal. Uh, don't forget all of the uh, construction bond money. We've borrowed an awful lot of money. In addition to the yep. block grant that they get every year, we've borrowed billions and billions to rebuild the campus. So being able to cut loose entirely from that and be the next Yale University of Connecticut, I don't think so. But um, let's start by just getting them off the $10 million a year to the Yukon Foundation, and we'll, we'll get there. So, so in, in another part, Derek, then, uh, as, as we wrap up, of, of what we heard very passionately from Dan, the donor, somebody who's, who's spent quite a bit of his time and his money supporting this effort, is he says, you know, look, th this is a better way to, to support the mission of a great research university than relying on the ups and downs of, of state government. Doesn't that necessarily suggest that the Yukon Foundation, if not in its current form, but in a future form that he is imagining, that it provides a clear government function. One of the tests that you're talking about, and this is a government function. This is supplanting the funding the taxpayers are supposed to be giving I, to, yeah. to, to, to a state university. If in that model that's what we're looking at, isn't that essentially something that should be open and available for all of us to see all of the records on? Well, one, I would say we do provide lots of information about how, where the money goes. And in all the different categories, it's in, and most people I say, you know, who say, where's the information? Haven't looked on the website and haven't looked at the annual report or the independent audit, et cetera. You know, we, we talked earlier about this example of, you know, how you asked, how did the university become number 19? And a lot of that, I, I completely agree with Senator McLaughlin that, um, a lot of that is because of the support, Governor Rowland, the General Assembly, Governor Malloy, um, you know, they've done a lot, right? And so when you look at the donor mentality, the donors want to bet on a winner. And they see the investment that the state is making, and they want to supplement that. They say, okay, we can get, we can help it get to the next level. In some cases, providing things that the state can't or won't provide. We talked about the practice facility. Uh, we've talked a little bit about President Herb's salary, right, where that's a case where if the foundation didn't step forward to, to help support uh, one of the top fundraisers uh, for the university, the president, we would probably have lost her. And then we know when the, uh, the president leaves, oftentimes fundraising goes in the tank for two or three years, whatever. So the board of trustees and uh, the foundation board decided, right, in a, in a transparent way, that they would make that investment. But my point is, if you look at the rise of the university uh, and where the funding comes from, it's used to supplement state funding. And to Dan's point earlier, donors don't want to be in the zero-sum game. So if the state starts cutting, you can't figure out, oh, well, you know what, donors are just going to step in. They'll build the next dorm. It won't happen. So, so we, we, we've run low on time. And, and Alexa, I want to give you the final word on this because we're, we're essentially talking about, so we've had it described as, as as necessary and, and vital, but supplementary. I mean, how should we view foundations like this and the role that they play in providing great education, but also, you know, doing so many things uh, that maybe state government should be doing, and what we should know about these things? I mean, 
It's a tough one. <laughs> I mean, even that foundation in 1891 in Kansas was considered a private system within a public system. And so how do you how do you create legislation around that? How do you set standards for it? I mean, it's very complex. There's no clear answer. But I don't think that this should be considered an adversarial relationship. I don't think it should be a fight uh, between open government advocates and foundation officials. I, I think we all want information to be shared. I, I sense that from the foundation. Um, I think the question is how much, right, and in what way. And that should be decided, um, but in a way that kind of keeps in mind that the work that the foundations are doing, I think the term umbilical cord, that's been used before, that they are, these foundations would not exist if it weren't for the universities. They exist to support the universities. And we really can't um, legislate away that relationship, and funding really isn't the only factor that creates it. So um, I think we have to kind of have a conversation about the importance of foundations, the very good work they do, and the really great thing about being transparent. I, as a donor, would rather give to a foundation that is open about its operations, its donations. That, to me, would engender trust. And I think that we, as potential donors in the public, I'd like to see that spirit more. Um, and I think that if we all felt that way, and if foundations were willing to come to the table, as, as you have been, I think we could come to a consensus about what we think should be shared. That's Alexa Capilotto, Assistant Professor of Journalism at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Also on our panel were Michael McLaughlin, Republican State Senator who serves the 24th District, Derek Slapp, the Associate Vice President of External Relations at the Yukon Foundation, and the Chair of the Yukon Foundation Board of Directors, Dan Toscano. Thanks to Katie Talarski and Lydia Brown for producing today's panel discussion. It was co-sponsored by the Connecticut Foundation for Open Government. Continue this conversation online at wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us.